Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I want to thank you for joining us here on episode 53. Today, we're going to feature an interview with Peter Rex. He is the founder and CEO of Trustwork, a technology business recreating the global economy and building what they call the new land of opportunity. So we're going to hear all about the very audacious goals that Peter Rex and his team have over at Trustwork. Also, at the end of this episode, you're going to hear another song from Nicholas Roberts. We had Nicholas on a previous episode uh, late last year, and we are going to hear today a song of his called The Rest of Our Lives. So uh, you've heard a few songs from Nicholas, including an interview with him. He's an Orlando musician and can be found at nicholasrobertsmusic.com. But uh, you can find him. He plays a lot of shows, especially in Florida. Um, But I want to thank Nicholas for allowing us to use that song here uh, at the end of this episode, which we will finish with. uh, Also, thank you for listening. I hope you are subscribed to this podcast. If you're not yet subscribed, that's the best way you can not miss an episode. You'll get the automatic alerts. So if you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, subscribe and you'll get the alerts. Also, subscribe a friend if you can. Spread the the message of what we're doing here, uh, learning from many of these great entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Also, uh, we have a website where everything will go up at agentsofinnovation.org. You can get links to the blog post about this episode, uh, links to our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I hope you're following us on all those accounts and sharing with your friends, family, and neighbors. But I just want to thank you again for joining us on the Agents of Innovation podcast And I hope you enjoy this great interview coming up with Peter Rex. I'd like to welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, Peter Rex, who is the founder and CEO of Trustwork. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Cisco, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, hey, um, we're really excited. Um, Where are you based right now? In Seattle? Seattle, Washington, yep. Well, great. And I know you have a w- wife and three kids, and you have uh, have quite the experience. Tell us a little bit about your uh, background. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is Peter Rex, and right now I'm working on building out Trustwork. Trustwork is kind of a life mission for me. It's going to be the largest company ever built, biggest company, uh, biggest company in the world. And bold statement, but we're actually poised to do so. And you know, quick thing of why maybe some listeners might want to listen to me. I'll jump into a couple of quick tidbits about myself that kind of give some of the credentials or credibility. Before building this current technology company, I had built a billion dollar real estate company. And um, I had attended uh, Harvard Law as well. So I have a JD from Harvard Law School. And I visited 85 countries in preparation and, and, and thinking about the the vision of trust work and how we're going to make that happen on a, on a truly global scale. So I actually attend, I visited those countries with my wife and child. And if you want to follow me, it's at Peter Rex on Twitter, Peter Rex on Twitter. And 
those are the main key points. Let's just uh, let's jump into things here, Cisco. So the biggest company ever built, that's what you're building? Yeah, yeah. We've got a truly uh, massive platform we've been working on. I've been, I've been at this for about a little over three years here. I had the idea about five years ago. Um, it's been sort of a, in a way, it's been an iterative process. Uh, I've been in business for about 13, 14 years here and uh, jumped right in out of college. I was a philosophy philosophy background, uh, actually philosophy and political philosophy, really. And I just jumped into business without knowing anything about business and uh, figured out entrepreneurship and how, how to get a company off the ground. Ended up coming to the real estate side because no one was going to give me any money and had to kind of cobble up money from friends and family, a thousand bucks here, 5,000 there, bought my first deals. And then over time, uh, aggregated a, about a little over $1.5 billion of assets and with a team of about 300 or so. And and at that point, I, I, I was still working on this uh, idea of this broader mission that I had in my heart of how to pull this off. And I took a step back from that company and started working on this concept, trust work, that is now flesh and blood. And it's, it's, we've got offices in San Francisco, where I just recently moved up to Seattle from, where I, I built out an office out of there. And a great office with the best technologists in the world out of there. And we've got a Seattle office now with about 15 people as well. I've been here about six months, and we've got an office in Austin, Texas, also, and Dallas, and one in Tampa Bay, great, Florida. Right so bring it, br- yeah, bringing it right into your hometown, Cisco. Yeah, well, great. Well, um, when you say the biggest company ever built, what do you, big in what way? Well, the the plan here is to be a it's a platform of entrepreneurship, okay. and the, the mission of Trustwork is to empower people to rise up and live abundantly. Um, so the way we're doing that is through this platform of entrepreneurship. But the way we look at entrepreneurship is that everybody is supposed to be an entrepreneur, can be an entrepreneur by developing their own skills and their skills turn into their future equity. And really, in today's economy, that's the only way forward for someone in the workforce. So really, what this platform is, it is the new economy. And that's what we, we want to be. We actually want to be the world's largest economy. So our vision is to turn into an economy that's larger than the United States. Um, so. But this is not just pipe dreams. I, we've, we've, we've thought about this in, in every area you could possibly imagine. I went to, like I said, 85 countries, but this wasn't a pleasure cruise. This was a year and a half of hardcore you know, hammering, um, so much so that I uh, told my wife a uh, number of times, which she loves traveling, but I, uh, <laughs> I told her I'm never traveling again. I never want to see another airplane because we had been to we went to every major city as well. And I went to every cultural point within these countries. So, I mean, we probably cleared over 150 to 200 cities or 250 cities possibly. And we had over a thousand meetings, uh, took over 1600 pages of notes um, and in developing out this concept. But so our, our the vision is kind of to become uh, ultimately the new land of opportunity because I think working people everywhere, they need a new land of opportunity. And uh, people like my grandparents, I'm sure, uh, you know, your family, from what I understand, was from Cuba. My grandparents came in from Ireland and they came in poverty and they were looking for a, a land of opportunity. And that's what the USA provided for them. And I think now with the new economy and the way things work, I really see things as global, meaning global and local. And I think that's that's what that's what we are. We're a global platform for working people to build their profile to, to access networks that are truly global, but also have on-demand capabilities locally. 
and ultimately to turn on the spigots for capital because without capital, you can't do anything in business. It's blood. So um, with this, the, basically you're talking about some of the new, the new shifts in the economy. Uh, I mean, we're seeing um, in a lot of places, you know, computers, technology replacing people. And so where are people going? Factories are closing, things like that. Maybe they're going overseas, but maybe they're just not even needed because, uh, you know, technology is just replacing the need for so many, so much labor. Um, so is that what you're sort of uh, looking at trying to help people build their own entrepreneurial skills uh, to, for the new economy so they can be uh, more useful? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, c- coming into business on my own, my parents were teachers. So some of this stuff comes out of my own historical uh, experience. And I'll get into a sort of a quick uh, story or so the audience understands sort of my background here is my parents were teachers, um, uh, very sort of Irish Catholic type background, uh, grew up in upstate New York, but didn't have the networks or the capital really or the knowledge to understand how to how to come up, how to make these types of moves. And what I did, I came out of Georgetown University with a philosophy degree, never thought about going to business, I actually considered business to be somewhat mundane, boring, and so, you know, sort of just something maybe mercenary-ish about it, glamoury. You'd see people, you know, business guys on a boat, and it's not something I was into. I was, I was very missionary in my my mind. I was very, I have a very strong missionary zeal to me. I actually attended this seminary before, um, spent some time in there. But I'm also a very, not a very um, a good person for authority, so it didn't work out too well. Um, but ultimately, I coming out of college, I sort of backed my way into business very quickly. I went to I actually went to a monastery for a couple weeks. Uh, Marianite Christian Monastery, where I spent a couple weeks in silence and really tried to figure out what am I supposed to do. I actually thought maybe going into business was a bit of a temptation or something, but the uh, I kept going back to prayer and feeling this strong call there. And the, the monk that would t- uh, would talk to me, he said that uh, he said no, no, you know, we wouldn't have this monastery if it wasn't for if it wasn't for business people. So I ended up deciding this was my calling. Came into business 13, 14 years ago, you know. Um, but without this knowledge, I had to figure out well, what what do I know? What's my advantages? And I really didn't mm-hmm. have any. But I did know I could read and understand things very well, <laughs> you know, which sounds like a pretty low bar here. But and I and I also knew I could influence people while I'd started groups. I'd been, you know, captain of my soccer team, president of my class, things like that. I was good with people. So these two things was the only things I had. So I leaned on those two things. I would use the interlibrary loan system and I took out 150 plus books, slammed through all these books. Um, and I'd live on, you know, people's couches or friends of mine. Um, brother, my brother of mine, he was very helpful to me. And, um, and that's it. I, and, but by doing this, I uh, cobbling things together and working my way up, I, I started realizing how the game is played and how things work. And business is one of the fastest moving things, um, today, 200 something years ago, I'm sure I would just be in the military. That'd be the best Avenue for me. But in today's world with the acceptance of capitalism globally, um, (laughs) you know, and hopefully this continues, but this allows someone with entrepreneurial drive and mission zeal to kind of channel that in a way that can create a lot of uh, excellent things for the world in a very fast way. So this is where I saw my pocket where I could play in. But as I did that, I started learning, you know, kind of what what didn't I know? I didn't have the networks. That's why I ended up going to Harvard, actually, was just to get like a, a network that was truly global and powerful. And and I didn't have the capital. And, and by the way, Harvard shouldn't be about that, right? It should just be about education. But this is kind of how it is currently. There's no way to make your reputation known. But so as I as I went out to into what I was doing, I started uh, into building out this company. I was building out the first company I built, which is uh, over a billion dollars. I started realizing all the things I didn't know, and I kind of had to get them right. 
But as I did that, I started realizing like, you know, I could build a platform that allows people to plug in, make their reputation known. So if they're excellent, they could do it on merit. Not if they went to some school or not, they could base it on merit, which is what it should be about anyways. And they can then access capital because capital, people with money, they want to make money with it. You know, generally banks want to make money, but they're unable to do anything. The system is broken currently. I think everyone knows that, right? If you And I realized that too, I could, my first loan I got for the business was a $45 million line of credit, which is ridiculous if you think about it. What happened when I needed $200,000 of a line of credit? Where was that? What about a million? So the 45 million is the only time they're gonna give me money. At that point, I already had you know, a lot of revenue. I was, already, I was already on my way. So you get money after you don't need it anymore. But really, in a proper system, a non-broken system, you should get money when you need it at the inflection point of when you know what you're doing, you need it, and you're able to make that play, right? Right. But that didn't work like that. It does work like that, by the way, in Silicon Valley, for uh, which is a very small area of the earth and very small population that's into that in software. If you have a good idea and you're in play, you can get the cash. Um, actually, if you have a bad idea, you also get the cash, turns out. <laughs> so, because I was out there looking at some, I, I also do investments in private companies through a through a private investment vehicle of ours. But, um, Anyways, um, let me let me let me kick it back over to you, Cisco, and uh, and keep this thing moving yeah, here. This but is, uh, this has been great and fascinating. I've been uh, just enjoying getting to. So so one part of tr- uh, trust work is you're building this platform for entrepreneurship, which you just detailed. Um, also, um, you guys mentioned that you ha- you are Uberizing real estate services. That's one of your other uh, you know elements of your business. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah. So. My background where I came out of was, uh, if we reverse back way into the past, <laughs> you know, I was in, before college, I was working construction, but I was a laborer. But, you know, you, I pick up some things. I understand how things are working. And then uh, coming out of college, I had a little savings. You know, we're talking like three, $5,000, you know, not enough, but enough to kind of like keep me, keep some, uh, enough to get, get food and things like that to buy some time for myself here as I was trying to figure out what I'm going to do. But this knowledge um, helped me. And then I, I jumped into real estate. That's where I made a lot of my initial money and where I built a lot of my uh, initial asset base, right? So, but from that experience, I also learned a, a ton about this, this real estate industry, which is turns out to be globally, and I know because I've been all over the place now as well, is that it's not just a huge industry in the United States. It's actually also uh, possibly the, you know, considered the biggest industry in the world. Because you've got people owning assets and land. You've also got people own homes. People, if you consider the services side, you've got the, the mortgage side, you've got the appraisers, underwriters, you have the whole entire construction industry, including plumbers, roofers, all these people. So it's just a massive part of the entire economy, the entire global economy. And it's not just in the USA, this is everywhere. I can so say that it's a massive type of a part of the Florida economy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that that knowledge um, is is something I have a mass, I have a huge comparative advantage on versus any other entrepreneur in technology because I just know it in and out. So, and I know it's ripe for it's ripe for being recreated. I like to use the word recreated, but other people would say disrupted. Um, it's ripe for recreation um, or disruption, whichever word you like. But because it hasn't been shattered and recreated for the new technologies that are out there yet, but we're doing it. I mean, we we already got some products that we've rolled out. And it's and it's working. We've rolled out a, a technology. So that that's our first play is Uberization of real estate services. And we've already made two very strong plays that are working well. Our first play we made about a year ago, and that's already got uh, two million in revenue thus far. But it's pre, it's 
conservatively projected to hit um, about uh, 36 million an annual revenue by next December. So it's, it's growing very fast. And what we've done there is we've rolled out a product called Trustwork Turns. And Turns focuses on the turnover process of an apartment, which might, it's kind of boring if you think about it, right? But at the same time, it's extremely complex. Anybody from the industry knows that this is the biggest pain point for an owner. And I would know because I had over a billion in assets and still do. So I know that that, and because I started at the ground level, I know the pain of that because I had to service the debt myself and I had no, I had no ability to sort of wait for a vacancy to just sit around while I got to go pay the bank. So I had to hustle really fast to get that thing, get that thing rented out. That gap period, it closes the time period from like, say an average of uh, 30 days down to seven. We've gotten it down to three days using this technology. And we have another one called Odd Job, which sort of is, uh, it, it takes up any type of uh, job that you need to get done on site. It could just snap it up and it uses market-based solutions just like Uber does. Uh, but it's got complex technology behind it that allows for the routing and the coordination of the labor. So it's, it's kind of like Uber in the marketplace sense of it. But it's uh, it's it's got the complex technology behind it, routing everything. Uber has that as well, but also routing it amongst multiple constituencies, not just drivers or that sort. It's also got it's got tons of different types of specialized tradesmen labor. Well, good. Well, um, let, let's take another step back here, uh, Peter, and talk about um, I, you know I know you mentioned going to Harvard. One of the main reasons you went there, Harvard Law School, right? Uh, one of the main reasons you went there was really to get the network and a very powerful network to have indeed. And and then uh, it sounds like what you did going around the world for a year and a half or so, um, 85 countries you mentioned, uh, hundreds of cities, uh, was, was more acquiring knowledge. So you mentioned uh, you had over 1,000 meetings and I think you said 1,600 pages of notes. Uh, tell me, who were the kinds of people you were meeting with and uh, it sounds like you had a very rigorous schedule. You must have been on the move almost every day. Yeah, it was um, it was a, it was extremely exhausting. Um, but it's a huge competitive advantage for me because we're building a truly global global and local platform that I also understand the global side really well. I understood the local side very well, better than other technology leaders would just because of my background. But the global side, I didn't understand as well. And now I know I have an edge on that that is something that people, it's not insignificant. It's extremely hard to overcome because the amount of logistics around that is unbelievable. I mean, the travels cost me, you know, a lot of money, almost almost a half million dollars, actually, just all the different logistics of hopping from place to place. And you can imagine, you know, getting a flight when you're in like, say, Johannesburg and you got to fly into Z Zambia in Africa or something. And then you're in Zambia and you want to get over to Zimbabwe. And then you're in Zimbabwe and then you got to get over to um, Botswana or something. So I was trying to hit all these things in consecutive ways, but not all the time. It's so easy to do that. And you've also got military problems on the ground. You've got political uprising risk. Um, you've got, I also had my family with me. I had a wife and a baby. So I had to really be kind of paranoid about everything. So, but people I was targeting on the ground were, I would leverage sort of local folks on understanding. I would, I would use, I, I would meet with private equity folks, anybody who was a large owner of things, um, and the way I would get these meetings is I would use my Harvard network. I also use the Georgetown network, which actually has a very good international poll. It's one of the better ones. Um, and then I used y YPO, uh, which is a young president's organization. It's, it's got some people in different, not every country, but a couple here and there. And then I was, I'm also part of another group called Tiger 21, which is sort of for people with a certain um, uh, net amount of assets. So I use those networks. 
And then I would just cold hit anybody. I had two to three researchers working behind the scenes, identifying the top targets in these countries for me to hit. So for example, when I was in Sri Lanka, I met with the richest guy in Sri Lanka off a cold email. I had no networks to him. He actually responded and I was able to get a meeting with him. And he runs, you know, so many different, he runs a conglomerate that owns so many different parts of the Sri Lankan economy. So I had a good meeting with him in his, uh, in his office. When I got in there, it's also, it's a, it's, it's sort of a window to the world from his point of view. I get in there, I sit down, we start talking. He talks about Bill Clinton, about Hillary Clinton, about how his daughter's with Hillary Clinton on there, you know, very closely working with her. He has pictures up with him and the Clintons. You know, the whole world is kind of uh, so big, but so small, if you think about it, right? Another, I met with uh, one of the wealthiest guys in Cyprus, and um, similar, uh, he had a picture, but from the other side, he had a picture with him and uh, George W. Bush, and before that with Reagan. So these guys are all kind of tight with the different political figures, even in the U.S., because we're, we're really a, we're a global powerhouse in the USA. So, but my, my, I would meet with these people, I would, I would go over things with them. I also had some cash, I was thinking about possibly making targeted investments, but I was mainly trying to establish the vision of trust work and how I would build this platform in a way that an entrepreneur on the ground there would be able to build his company out of there or his business or his life. Because the way I define entrepreneur includes anybody and anybody that wants to move ahead, right? Which is basically anybody. So say if someone's in Nigeria, you know, what kind of troubles do they have? Like, what do they need? What do I got to build? So, and I could tell you, I mean, I kind of, I mean, I, I don't have the exact answers to everything, but I have, I now have a very strong sense of what they need. Say if you're in Nigeria and you're in Lagos and you want to, in Lagos, Nigeria is a huge country, by the way, 150 to 250 million people. Um, the reason why I give a broad range there is because I heard estimates and, you know, up to 250 million down to 150 and the government hasn't been able to pinpoint the exact number. That's how broad of a range. That's how bad the government is. <laughs> so anyways, the problems there, if you're an entrepreneur, right? And they got some crazy good talent there is what are the problems there? You, you don't have your capital systems horrible. So your currency is horrible. So if you're making money, you're actually losing it at like a, a very high percentage rate of your capital is going down in value every year. So if you're trying to save money, you're like running on a treadmill. As you save your money, it gets it loses value every year. So it could go down 30, 10, 20, 30%, right? Look what happened in Zimbabwe. So well, anyway, so, so it's like some of these the factors you're 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 uh, talking about um, might be like found in some of these studies, like the indexes of uh, economic freedom and how people can, you know, how 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 the rule of law and capital is accessed, um, you know, in in some of these countries and and how people can or can't be entrepreneurial. I mean, we probably have some extreme examples like, you know, North Korea or Cuba, or Venezuela, uh, to places maybe on the other end like. Hong Kong, Singapore, Switzerland, um, and then I'm sure there's a lot in between those sorts of extremes. But uh, I mean, is that what you're kind of kind of trying to find out what's going on locally there for, for people? Yeah, I was trying. I mean, and all those things I, I was aware of from reading, right? But there's some things you just don't understand until you're on the ground, I, I guess. And it's almost an emotional thing. It's almost like you got to get in there and press the flash on the ground to really have a sense of what it's like for the entrepreneurs on the ground. And I think some of the uh, some of the uh, write, written material on things are just overly simplistic. Right. They're almost like soundbite answers, like you know, Hong Kong, uh, you know, Sing Singapore, Switzerland, the best, right? Well, yeah, I mean, but at the other hand, those those are the very small jurisdictions, um, very small populations. I mean, the world has seven billion people. How many people are in uh, in Singapore? I don't I don't even know the number now, but it's very small. Um, and so really, it's like, you know, how do we actually have something that can touch more than, say, 5 million, 10 million people? How can we get something that's actually going to have a meaningful impact and empower people to, to be able to move upwards? 
And that's kind of like the questions I was asking myself. And and it would be it would be this is why longer podcasts are a better format for these discussions, honestly, because if this was a short one and I was trying to give you short answers about what I saw and some of my takeaways, it would be and even in a 60 minute podcast or however long this is going to be, it would even be too simplified in a way. But it's still interesting and it can get the dialogue going in the right place. But I think you've got kind of like two you've got two major prongs, I think. Right. You have civic virtue on the one hand, say the population having virtue, massively important. You also have system, having a very good system. That's also massively important. If you get either one wrong, you're screwed. So, for example, uh, Nigeria, it has inherited the British system, more or less, right? right? So has India, but it doesn't work, right? It, or it's a lot of problems on the ground. So what the heck's going on there? Well, I mean, the government leaders are not exactly operating with civic virtue. And I know some of them, if they hear this, would probably not be happy with me saying this, but it doesn't matter. I mean, you got to speak the truth, right? And the thing is, and the people on the ground that are suffering are, there's a lot more of them than there are people in the government that are just siphoning off the money. Um, but they don't have that civic virtue. So they're not doing the right thing. They have the system without the civic virtue. And then you have, you have where you have good civic virtue, but you don't have a good system like Cuba, right? I've been to Cuba as well. Cuba, you have an absolutely horrible system. It's completely, it's so bad that the only way you could, you can reason as to how this could still exist when you're on the ground is that just massive amount of arrogance from the leadership. They refuse to see that they were wrong. But the horrible system, same thing, same thing in Zimbabwe, but a great civic virtue. In Zimbabwe, 99% literacy rate, I think is the highest in, in, uh, in Africa. People are great, man. My, my taxi driver, I go to get the taxi, she's reading a newspaper. I get in there, I start talking, we have a great conversation, speaks English, has a lot to say about a lot of things. You know, well-educated people. But the system is completely broken. Their currency doesn't even work. It was a hyperinflation environment. They had like, you know, they had some funny like dollar bills around there given away. It's like a million dollar bill in Zimbabwe and old money currency. They just used the, they used the yeah, American dollar. Exactly. They used the American dollar to, as an exchange. They actually don't have their own currency really. So, um, so completely broken system, great savior virtue. Um, what ends up happening in these places, it still doesn't work. Where do the people go then? Well, Zimbabweans are some of the best entrepreneurs, actually, and working people in other countries like South Africa. They're considered to be some of the best. A lot of the a lot of the private equity groups, you'll see Zimbabwean there leading stuff, or somewhere in that pocket, you know, at play and, and just very hard workers, very educated. Same thing in Cuba. A lot of the best Cubans, um, a lot of great Cubans still there, but a lot of great Cubans left. Um, you know, look at Miami. It was built by Cubans. A lot of Orlando, Tampa has got a lot of Cubans as well. Yourself, your Cuban background, right? So yeah. you know this better than I do. But you know that system is. When I was in Cuba, I mean, there's a lot of funny stories even when I was there. But we, we know we can get into them, or we, we can't get into them if you like. But it's a uh, it's a completely, absolutely broken system, and they just do a good job of trying to mirror to the world a better image than what's actually there. Right, right. Well, so let's uh, let's talk about um, someone who uh, maybe maybe a middle class American. Uh, give me a little profile of someone who. Uh, you, you, maybe, maybe there's stories you have already of, of people who have uh, utilized or plan to utilize uh, your platform. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this could be, we're building this really for anyone. We really want this thing to uh, be sort of uh, the opposite of Facebook in a way is how we're building it. And sometimes people understand things by contrast. Facebook, if I contrast it with Facebook, you have, a, you have Facebook as a platform in which people are primarily uh, being distracted. Right. And the the incentive of the company is to distract them in order to make money, right? Our company on the flip side is similar in that we're a network, um, similar in that we're 
uh, we're aggregating people on there that are able to connect with each other and do things, right? Um, but extremely different in our approach. We're actually going to make money on making people productive. So our engineers and our entire team has that incentive to make people productive. And that means the opposite of the eyeball approach, trying to get eyeballs on screens and keep them there. Our approach is actually that your eyeball is not on that screen for too long, that you're able to keep, you know, shortly, boom, and then you're out. Do your job, do what you got to do. So it's really the opposite of a Facebook type approach is a good way to think about it. Just to kind of put the context so people understand what trust work is. Yeah. So then if you someone, say, so when someone comes yep. there, uh, yeah, give me an example of like what they're doing there and and how they're utilizing the platform. Absolutely. So I give you I give you an example of a concrete person. We have an entrepreneur on the platform. His name is Sean. Um, Sean is, and this is ex, this is dead on the type of people I know that are going to take advantage of this to the maximum. And I actually recruit and target these types of people in the company uh, for this reason. Actually, one of my uh, right-hand partners is um, is a very similar background to this. That's why I know they're out there. Is Sean is a, he has a sports background. He uh, came from a middle-class type um, family um, from Buffalo, New York. Went to state school on a scholarship, which is a double good hit. It means low. It's, it means you have already low low amount of pay if you go to state school. Secondly, which is a kind of a, it's also an indicator to me that you're making a shrewd decision. I'm not saying you're smarter or less smart than someone else because I don't want to be offensive, but if you go to a state school, you and I did not go to state school, by the way, so I, at that point I wasn't as smart, but it's, a, it's already a smart decision going to one of better state schools. So he went to SUNY Binghamton, which is an excellent state school in New York. And from there, he had a scholarship in lacrosse, which helped pay his way. So that way he didn't have to come out with a lot of debt. Coming out, he had done business for about three, four years, and he's on the platform run. He runs actually this company called Turns Construction Services, and he's running that, and it's and he's built it over in about a year. He's been working on it for about a year to year and a half. He's built it over to over two million in revenue already. But I mean, it's got a huge it's got a huge uh, you know future to it. So but that's a good example of somebody that is doesn't come from necessarily the best networked school, doesn't you know, didn't come from privilege, didn't have money, didn't have investment behind him or capital access. Um, and it is coming up and is really at the beginning of what he's going to be able to do. And I think he's, he's only about 27 years old or something. So. Great. And what, and what was his, uh, so he had a, he had a, this background in college and what is he, what is he going to be, uh, doing? He runs as a CEO, this company called turns. Oh, okay. And yes. Yep. Yep, he runs it as he runs it as a CEO. Um, well, that's great. Well, that's a, that's a really good example, and that that's one of your companies, right? It is. Yeah, it's a company we backed. Yeah, on the okay. platform, and uh, I know him because he he came. We talked. We talked. One of the things I target as well, in case any listeners that know people, is I target people who go to state school. Well, we have a lot of things we target, but one of the the, the heuristics I use is state school graduate, sport background. And I target those types because they tend to be very good at ground or operating businesses. Good, good. Uh, yeah, no, I think uh, I think I think you're right on uh, with that. So, um, yeah, this this sounds like a really great um, opportunity. And then, you, so you're you're backing and you're you're it basically in trust work is investing in these entrepreneurs, and and is that part of the way that trust work um, makes money? It is, yeah. Um, we we invest, we we back um, certain op- you know certain operations like this. However, I back these early ones just as proof of concepts 
because I knew it would work and I just built out the platform. So really what's going to be happening, what's already is happening is people are just going ahead and and running their companies on it or running themselves on it as sort of a solo entrepreneur where they do their business and they're building their reputation on it. Because anybody, it's sort of like a, any, if you say like how LinkedIn plays, LinkedIn is sort of a, a place where people keep their resume. Right. This would be like a place you keep your resume, but you can actually build up reputational information that could then turn into entrepreneurial power for you in the future. So we have people on there. We have a, we actually have an entrepreneur that runs a maintenance type of company off of this in Florida. And she, she runs her company off this. And we, we have a, we have a number of these companies out there that are already doing it. We have about 16 million in revenue that's been on the platform thus far, 2 million, 2 million of which have been on turns. So there's a other 14 million out there. And I don't know all the different people because we have over, we have about 20 or over 20,000 users at this point. So, but things are really picking up on it and, and people are taking advantage of this. And, and the vision here is that there's going to be millions of these businesses running on this thing in three to seven years. So tell me, uh, how did you come up with the name Trustwork? That's a good question um, because uh, people often don't ask me that. They just assume it sort of came from heaven. Um, but basically, it's pretty well thought out. I mean, the most important or key thing, the first thing in business that's, and I kind of touched on this when I mentioned about Cuba, Nigeria, mm-hmm. you know, Zimbabwe, um, is the most important thing, first thing in business for anything to work is trust. And I don't mean it's, you know, I trust you and you trust me and let's all go hug each other and stuff. And that's all nice and stuff like that, you know. But uh, what I'm actually talking about, there needs to be some kind of basis for engagement in commerce. And in order for that to exist, you need to have some either trust in the person you're dealing with, like you know that if you give this person this good or this service, you're going to get something back, or you trust an intermediary that's in between you. So oftentimes in the USA, say, we trust maybe the person we're dealing with, and that enables us to move pretty fast, or we don't trust them that much and we just lawyer up. And we've got very good contracts and we know that if the person doesn't come through on the other end, well, we're going to sue them or whatever. The courts will then, we'll trust the court to uphold the law. So, you know, trust is the first thing in business. That's the bottom line. And that's why the first word is trust. And the second word is work because that's really what we're about. We're about the work, working place for people. And, and that's what our focus is, is about making people productive, empowering them. Yeah, when you mentioned uh, before how this was sort of a platform uh, where people could kind of verify uh, your reputational skills and everything, kind of kind of hinted to me about what where you're going to go with trust work. So uh, thank you for for explaining that. Um, the other thing, uh, so I'm going to ask you sort of uh, two two parts here. Uh, one of the things I ask a lot of um, the uh, the guests I've had on probably the last ten or twelve episodes is. Uh, what your first job was. This was a question I, I got from uh, Senator Ben Sass's book, The Vanishing American Adult. He likes to ask these, this question uh, when he meets people, he says, because it tells him a lot about the person. So I wanted to ask you what your first job was and, and what you m- may have learned from that job. Um, and, uh, and, and this could be something you did as a kid, of course, um, or, or, or any, any first job you had. And then, and then are there any skills that you might have uh, you know, kept with you today and some of the work you're doing? Yeah. Uh, great question. And I'll jump right into that, but just quick side note is I just got a book on Friday from Ben Sass via a friend of mine that knows him that has like a little, a little note in there to me. So it's, it's called them. Oh yeah. It's the name of the book. And, um, so I actually just, I almost finished it yesterday. I opened it up hanging out with my family yesterday, but 
almost finished it. Pretty interesting guy. I actually was not familiar with uh, Ben too much. And now I'm a little bit more familiar. And I guess, you know, he's trying to make some inroads into the technology side as well, evidently. But seems like a very solid guy. But let me jump right into your question now. What was the first job? Um, I mean, it, you know, I did a lot of jobs growing up, you know, it's almost like uh, borderline slave labor. But um, the, uh, you know, one job, I guess, that sticks out because it was sort of there was a number of memorable, funny jobs I did that were odds and ends type jobs. But one was baling hay. And I grew up in upstate New York. So okay, that's a new uh, one for us, bailing hay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I, I recommend it to you if you uh, ever want to make a, you know, if you ever want to suffer. Um, <laughs> so, but uh, basically, my buddy and I, we uh, were, you know, would go out to this farm and and we weren't actually hireable because we were too young. So I think it was like below the age of when you can hire somebody. I don't even know how old I was here. But the farmer hired us anyways, and we did it for cash, and he would pay us um, below minimum wage, which I think was like, I don't even know what the minimum wage then was, um, 36, so I don't know what it was then. But it was we got paid around four bucks an hour. But basically what we do is we just like fill up his barns with hay. Uh, he would get the, you know, take all the stuff, wrap it up, and it would be wrapped, and we just had to stack the hay the whole entire day. <laughs> horrible, horrible job. But um yeah, there's dignity in that though too. And uh, I'll jump into that. I mean, it, it humbles you, it, the hard work of it, you are creating, you're doing good things, but I'll get, I'll give you a couple uh, thoughts about this actually is that, well, well, first of all, it's kind of funny. I would go in, we'd basically go in there and hammer it out. Right. And the farmer's water was uh, horrible. It was a uh, sulfur water. I don't know if you've ever experienced sulfur water before, no. but sulfur water can be uh, like rotten eggs. It's mm. disgusting. Um, so I used to come with a jug of water, like a jug from sports I used to bring with us. And one day, my, I think my buddy uh, did something with my water. I don't know if he dumped it on his head or something stupid, but I ended up working the whole day and I was like, I didn't have any water. So I was like, I'm not drinking this guy's water no matter what. But it was, you know, probably like a hundred and something degrees in this barn as we're just like hammering, working like crazy. And I ended up, uh, you know, having to go to the farmer's door, knock on his door. And I was like, hey, man, eventually because I broke and I was like, I just, I got to drink water. I'm going to die or something. So I go to his room. I go to his thing and knock on he comes out with a big jug and I just end up down to the whole entire thing of sulfur water. But um, anyways, uh, on bailing hay, I would say what I, my takeaways on that were technology is going to be good. It's going to relieve humanity of, of low end jobs like this. It's going to be disruptive though in the short term. But there's going to be a there. Ultimately, we will see an explosion of new jobs because they'll be in the knowledge economy. And these jobs are going to look something like software engineering looks today with all sorts of new jobs within that field. So software engineering, you have tons of different niche type focuses within there. So you've got like, you know, front end, back end, bend they talk about. But really, you have so many different pockets within there. People who are very good at JavaScript, people who are good at just Java. People are very good at React. Specialists within that area, specialists that are you know, good at certain types of, um, you know, whether it's like UI type or user interface software. I think that's what we're going to see as things move up tranche from lower tranche labor, like bailing hay, for example. Um, so I don't know, I, I try to give you an idea of some of the lessons I got from there as well, if there was any lessons, yeah, besides no, make sure well, you, you uh, the lesson is come prepared your, with jugs of water, you know, yeah, don't let your buddy that's one thing. Pour your only last glass jug of water on you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, on himself probably. Or on himself, right, yeah. it was a 100 degree day. Um, well, um, so, so advance us a little bit more. Um, you then uh, got into real estate. That's where you um, began most of the beginning of your career, right? And then tell us a little bit about that, and then uh, maybe we can, we can kind of circle back uh, and, and just wrap up where that led you to 
come up with the idea of trust work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, if I go back to my starting point was coming out of college, right? Get out of college. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. Didn't know anything about business. Had, you know, I was of the mindset if, uh, you know, there was a business guy like Bill Gates outside of my door, I wouldn't even come out to see him. I would, uh, But if you told me, you know, someone like Mother Teresa or like some cultural influence person was outside my door, I'd wait for three hours to, to see the person. So this is kind of the mind sh- shift that happened to me coming out of college. And so when I decided I had to go into, into business, I ended up, I ended up uh, reading all these books via the interlibrary loan system, which is a great system actually to hack your way forward and figure out and, and get knowledge for the audience. If anybody's out there, doesn't have money, doesn't, you know, can't afford buying like 150 books or whatever, you can use the interlibrary loan systems because these are things that are connected and have them mail books to you. And that's what I did. I would just, at first I'd pick them up from one site, but then that site would, the librarians were getting kind of mad because I was ordering so many books that would just coming in. They had to take all the boxes and give them to me. So I started going with three different sites and I'd go and pick up different books at a time because there's just so many of them. And I was able to get through very fast, you know, because there's a lot of uh, fire in you to, to get it done because if you don't, you're running out of money. Right. So and you don't know where you're going. So I ended up going through all these books, figured out more or less from a book standpoint, what business is about and how to make plays in it which is not enough, by the way, you actually got to get in there and make some plays. I also got a mentor at that time through the Knights of Columbus. My dad knew someone through charity that kind of gave me, gave me very critical advice. And he's a great guy. I'm still very close friends with him. Actually, he gave me a lot of blocking and tackling advice. His family was Jordanian immigrants who came to the U S and made their money in real estate. So anyway, so he gave me a good advice. So getting a mentor, helpful, reading books, helpful, but then you got to make plays. And I did within my first year and a half, what I ended up doing was, well, let me give you my thought at the time, right? I was like, no one was going to give me any cash. I went around talking to some people, even people that knew me wasn't, they weren't going to give me any money. So you're not in a good position when you're starting. Let's put it that way. Especially if you don't know anything about business and don't have a business family. And, and my family also, they were supportive of me as a person, but business was not something, my parents are teachers. So they were kind of confused, like do something good with your life. You know, why are you thinking about going to business? My dad was, is a, is a great guy too. And he was just really confused by this. He was like, Hey, you know, you know, I thought you were really, you know, kind of about helping people. Now you want to go into business. That seems like that's not really a good fit for really helping out people. And I try to explain to him how like this, this will, and I can create jobs. I can create opportunities. I can create things for customers and build people up. And he wasn't quite kind of getting it. So, but leaving that aside, I ended up having to come figure it out. Right. So, and the way I did that was through the books and through mentorship, but then I had to figure out an angle. How am I going to get into the game? And the only way for me to do that, that, well, the way I came up with was I can buy real estate, a property, because people will look at the property and say, okay, I like that property. I might not like you too much, but I don't dislike you. I trust you as a person, but you don't really know business, but that property is going to make money. So that's how I got in. And I, I would, my first couple of deals I lined up, they had distressed, they were distressed deals, um, heavily problematic on an operation side, was able to get in there, lock them up and then get capital and close the deal. And then that, that got me started. Right after that, I came in, I ran construction on it really hardcore. I learned Spanish in college on my own. I went to Ecuador and I spent two months and kind of learned Spanish. So a lot of my working people that I worked with were, were Mexican immigrants, actually, who I would speak, who I can only speak extremely highly of. They're absolutely some of the most honest people I ever dealt with. Hardworking, awesome. And, and I'm, I'm a big fan of immigration. You know, I'm a big fan of keeping it legal as well. But I think this is like a great opportunity for us as a country to get these people coming to our country from, from especially from Mexico. Um, a- anyway, so I ended up jumping in and uh, and that's how I got my start, right? And then from there, I, I rolled up about 24 more deals. 
very quickly. So I ended up having about 100 apartments within a year and a half. And in the meantime, I applied for Harvard via, an, I took the LSAT. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of a crazy time for me. I, I took the LSAT. Would cut, in between the LSAT, I'd be like closing deals. They were like, hey, you got to get back in here if you want to finish this test. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. So come back in, finish it. Did the, I applied the last day of the, the time you could apply to law school. Ended up, I was only going to go to like Harvard or Yale because in my simplistic brain at the time, I was like, I just, I'm only going to go there if I get in. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep doing my thing. Ended up getting in. I went there. And, and then as I, and as I was there, I kept things moving as well and kept building up. But that's kind of how I got my start. Well, that's great. Um, and then, and then you just, you, how did, where did you see the vision for trust work? So I, broadly speaking, I had in my, in my heart, this kind of very big idea that I felt I was called to do. And, but then business was kind of my vehicle that I was going to do it with. And I didn't, I kind of like discovered more or less in, as I was making plays, what I was doing. So even law school, part of the reason why I went there was law school is sort of like the software of society. It's sort of the, it's the rules of the game across the board, right? Right. And then accounting is sort of the, it's a, accounting is sort of the language of the game. That's what Warren Buffett calls it, right? The language of the game. So I actually got a CPA as well while I was at law school. Um, I did it on the side. I didn't know anything about accounting. That was the reason why I did it. So, and um, I used these, um, these things to also kind of like understand business further. And as I was doing it, it started opening up my eyes more to how I could how I can make this happen because I wanted to have something truly that was global in in, in nature because I knew that that's the world that's the way the world is. Yet I wanted to affect the local environments and, and be able to provide opportunity to an individual person, not just conceptually. Oh, humanity as a whole. It's sort of there's a good line. I think it's somewhere in like G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis. I don't know. I'm, all these people are conflated in my brain. They just come together. But he says that basically a lot of modernists love humanity, but they hate people. Yeah, um, They hate the individual. And I, I didn't want to fall into that trap. And I worked with Mother Teresa's sisters actually in the Southeast DC when I was at Georgetown. I started a group there to help out with them. So I, I really like that. And actually I got my personal motto comes from something I learned from them, which is I, I call it serving people in business. They say, uh, and really, I, uh, and my internal motto is serving Jesus in business. So, but that's just me personally. But it, and but I got that from them. They have serving Jesus in the poor. But they're they they believe in in the individual you serve that person, and I think that's very important for me. Like on this platform, I'm in my mind, I'm trying to help out that individual that's trying to move up and they're struggling. You know, and, and these people are everywhere. I mean, they've got in these other countries. You know, um, some of them are they really crave to get their kids into a good school. And sometimes they crave basic things like, you know, food, water, basics, right? Some of that stuff I can't get to with trust work, but I can at least help someone who's, you know, already has food, water that wants to move up to the next level, wants to get an education, wants to get their kids educated and they want to, and they merit, like, you know, gifts are not distributed only in the United States. These people, they merit actually getting capital and they have great ideas and they can make moves and, but they don't have access to networks and they don't have access to capital, but they don't have access to software. But those three things now they move globally. So there's no reason why we can't build it for them. Well, that's fantastic. And I think it kind of goes back to, you know, maybe that comment your father said uh, was who was confused a little bit about, you know, how can a business help people um, or how can going into business help people? It's, you know, some people have this idea that, you know, business people just they're just all about profit and profit isn't you know, it's only for them. It's not so. Uh, you know, maybe maybe doing something else will help people. But you know, people forget that that is creating jobs, and what you're doing is now creating a platform for 
uh, many entrepreneurs to create jobs. And so I think that's really fantastic. And um, I think it's going to be really great to follow uh, trust work and what all, all you guys are doing um, all across the country and, and all, all across the world. Um, I, as you're, as you're discuss, you know, you've gone through a lot of this entrepreneurship yourself and you're discovering entrepreneurship. Uh, what, uh, we're, as we close this out, I'll just give you one of the last words here. What are some of the, uh, uh, basic, um, uh, things you've seen uh, about entrepreneurship? If there's, if there's an entrepreneur listening, um, or even just folks, you know, we also, uh, interview philanthropists and artists, uh, a lot of creative types, but if, the, but, but if there's an entrepreneur listening, what's a, a takeaway you've had that maybe they can learn from? I would, I would give them two things. I think, first of all, I think, uh, if, if they're an artist, if they're an artist out there, I think being an entrepreneur, you know, is being an artist because it's about creativity and people who know me actually really well have, um, that also know kind of what goes into ar- being an artist or, you know, that type of a person have told me that I basically dead on. I'm exactly that type, the way I act, the way I behave, my behaviors. I mean, it's basically about entrepreneurship, about passion. If you're going to be very successful, I would say the the most important thing, it's hard to say, you know, what's the most important thing, right? Who knows? I would say of the most important things, if I had to soft rank them, I'd put love at the top. And actually it's the first virtue I mentioned and the virtues of the company, because you've got to love what you're doing. You've got to love who you serve. And I think you should love who you work with as well. And, and that, that kind of makes it that it's not really like work. It's almost like fun, even though you, you are working, but work is, is something very much about who we are in our nature. We're creators, you know, we're created, we're, you know, we we're created in the image of God, um, or for those who aren't religious then whatever. But I, I, I think that at least you could acknowledge that there is some sort of an intelligent being. I think some most people would acknowledge something like this, right? Or at least an agnostic would say that this is possible. Well, then if that is the case, uh, then we would reflect this in some way. And, and so when, when we are creating, we most reflect that creative nature, at least this is my personal belief anyways. And when you do that, it's really, you're almost like at the essence of who you are. And I think everyone is called to do that, by the way. You know, anybody, I mean, yourself, Cisco, you're an entrepreneur as well. You're making it happen. I mean, how many other people are like you are out there? I mean, podcast is a very new form of media. And, but that's the first thing I think. I think the second thing I'd say that's very important is business has its limitations. And I I learned this actually, um, maybe the hard way somewhat is it took me a while to realize this, that business has its limitations. You can't get to the poor through business directly. You can get them indirectly through the trickle down or through just moving things up like the iPhone has, right? It moved up the standard of like what we consider to be a phone and what a phone can do. And then all the other things kind of moved upwards, right? So it can affect it indirectly, but directly you can't get to it, which is why I set up a, I have a foundation called Make Rise Foundation. And that is something that I moved on because I knew I couldn't get to this part. And I hear in my heart, the cry of the poor and I need to do something there. I can't just ignore that. And business can't get to that directly. So that's what Make Rise does. And I think everyone who's out there is maybe maybe there's other entrepreneurs here or will become successful as well. You know, we, we've got to make sure we're doing something in addition to business as well, something in the charitable side, because business is, is not the entire solution. Sometimes you hear these free market guys sometimes, and it's almost like a complete religion. It's like free markets can solve everything. It's definitely not the case, 100% not the case. You cannot get to the board directly with business because they don't have the money to pay for your good. So, and they need education, they need basic stuff. We, we actually have a school that we started in Tampa Bay. 
um, with Make Rise, and, and it's been off the ground now for three years, and it's targeting only poverty line or below, and it's and it's working. Um, and we're we're leveraging the Crystal Ray model on that. If I don't know if you're familiar with that model, but it's very very interesting. You can visit it one of these times if you're interested. But Cisco, because I know you live in Orlando. But um, anyways, uh, Make Rise one I'd of the love first to visit it. Yeah, It'd be great. At Make Rise, we've we've got a few different initiatives that we're we're moving on, which is is we're looking to disrupt K through college. No one's disrupted the education system for I don't know how long. Yet there's all this new technology and everything else, and and the colleges have become like a cartel, and they just they kind of like monopolize networks that needs to be disrupted. And and also education should be a lot more uh, distributed now the way it works. Anyways, let me not get into that because that's a whole uh, yeah, it's that's a whole a rabbit whole hole. Podcast. We <laughs> had a couple of uh, podcast episodes on those subjects. So nice to see that you're uh, you're piling on to the uh, education needs to be disrupted and is being disrupted. I think uh, in some ways, but maybe maybe needs to be more so. Uh, well, Peter, we could probably continue talking to you for a few more hours, uh, but uh, we're very thankful of your time and uh, and and we're going to keep uh, watching you. Uh, for those uh, who are uh, listening, um, we're going to put, uh, you know, obviously this, this podcast is, is found on, on different platforms, but we're going to put our, um, our blog post up about this episode at agentsofinnovation.org, and we'll uh, connect you, uh, everybody, through our social media on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and, uh, and we'll connect with you as well, Peter, um, and, and make sure our audience uh, links in to you and, and, and gets updates uh, over time just so we can follow uh, your work. Uh, but uh, thank you. I want to thank you so much for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thank you, Cisco. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye now. Morning, I love you. Don't leave if I hurt you. I hope you will understand. Maybe we're made for an uncomplicated year. I don't see that happening What if this is the rest of our life What would you do about it then? Do about it then? What if this is the rest of our life What would you do about it then? Do
about it, then we'll 